This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you know you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, unlike the Owls, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So there's only one thing left to say. What's everybody having? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means you'll get some tasty rewards later on. And between you and me, if you order just before kickoff, you can get it just in time for half time. But I've not told you that. Only via the app at participating restaurants, 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery free and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. See you later. The Wednesday Week. The Sheffield Wednesday Fan Podcast. Hello and welcome to a, uh, a special edition of the uh, of the Wednesday Week Podcast. My name is Dan Fudge and it's time for me to put my uh, Michael Parkinson voice on and uh, cut out the knob gags and all the rest of it because, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's what I'm famous for, I think. And um, now, last week you may have seen a, uh, an article... Uh, swinging around social media in reference to a uh, an ex-player of ours, seven years since he made his debut, uh, about Paul Corrie and his time at um, at Sheffield Wednesday. So he joins us on the line this afternoon. How's it going, Paul? You all right? Oh, good, Dan. I tell you, talking about a special edition, you've put me under a bit of pressure here now. <laughs> I tell you, what, I'll delete that and then we'll uh, we'll put it we'll put it out with the rest of the drivel <laughs> and the knob gags. We'll <laughs> we'll go with that. Uh, Paul, really appreciate you joining us uh, today, and um, I wanted to give you a platform to tell us a bit more about your time at, at the Owls, and um, and obviously go into a bit more depth about the uh, about the article that happened. So uh, so let's go back uh, seven years, as I said in the intro, and because you told me not 30 seconds ago uh, that it's been since you, you, uh, you had your debut against Southampton in the League Cup. Is that correct? It is indeed. Yeah, God, it it, uh, it almost feels like longer ago now. It's it's a very distant memory that I have. But yeah, seven years ago, um, obviously signed for Sheffield Wednesday on a, on a three-year contract and it started off so well and probably didn't materialise as I would have liked. But I guess that's probably where the article stemmed out of last week and I, I delved into some of the challenges and the difficulties that I experienced at Sheffield Wednesday and that a number of players um, experience at the different clubs. And I probably didn't intend on getting so in-depth and so engrossed in the conversation when it happened, but that's just the way it led. And it's actually been received quite well on, on social media and it's given fans probably a bit of an insight into maybe some of the difficulties players go through when they're they're not uh, the manager's cup of tea or they're, they're just not in the manager's frame of mind at that moment in time. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, th I think the you know the reason it's been quite well received is we don't normally get something so candid. Every now and again, it's all very polished and it's all very uh, you know th this this was all v very refreshing to hear. It was actual pure honesty that was coming out, and, it, and, it, and after a while, football fans respond to the to the honesty of it. Now, when you came into the club, I mean, I think we'd just been promoted. Is that correct? And everybody was on a high. It must have been a great time to be around, no? It was, and and. You know, my background was was playing in the League of Ireland here, and I just completed a a business degree in university. So I was on a high in more than one front. I had racked up a hundred senior games here. I just finished my degree, and I was really looking to get my teeth into full time football. And I wanted to aim for a level that I felt I was able to play it. And luckily, and I always say this, I'm I'm really really grateful to the club, to the chief executive to Dave Jones, to his backroom team for giving me the opportunity to design for such a massive club and, and to play for Sheffield Wednesday. And Dave Jones handed me my debut and he, he put an element of trust in me to to play in big games against the likes of Leeds in, in Hillsborough. So I'm grateful for, for people. You know, it may have come across in the interview that I was bitter. Um, and maybe that, that's just how it read. I, I I am bitter to an extent of things that happened and I felt on, on a human level I should have been treated a bit better at times um, and maybe starved of certain opportunities at other clubs. Um, but I I respect the decisions of the, of the management team at the time and yes, it, it started quite well, particularly in that first season, but then we, we started to trickle down the table and the manager then decided to call on more experienced players and, and maybe change the way we were playing. And I had to respect that as a player, you know, that Dave Jones yeah. had been in the game far longer than I had. And he felt that in order to ensure that this side was going to stay in the championship, that maybe he needed to adopt a, a different style of play and use different people. And I respected that at the time. It's probably the, the events that followed after and the way that I was treated and probably isolated from the first team squad that I didn't necessarily agree with. And, the human level of it that maybe people don't see when they're not around the training ground that was something that I that I found difficult to deal with because I'm I was a football fan growing up most football mm -hmm. players are and my family eat sleep and breathe the game and that was my dream my dream was to always go away and play in in the English leagues and compete at the highest level possible and like anybody when your dream doesn't really materialize to be and um, probably as fruitful as you would once of hoped, that was something that I struggled to deal with. I can I can imagine I can imagine that being difficult. So let's get right into it then. So you you, you came in, we're you know we're on a high, and we thought Dave Jones was going to take us to the promised land of the Premier League and all the rest of it. We're going to go sailing straight out the leagues, and then it, like 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 you referenced, it just went a little sour. Was there was there any reason for that? Was there unrest somewhere, or did we just think we could, you know, we really had to change our game just just to make sure we turned up to the party. I mean, what what do you think it was? Well, there was there was a lot of new people and there was a lot of new players within that squad that season. I think it was the guts of 15 players had come in during that summer transfer window. So like any club, when you're blooding that many new people into a team, it takes time to transition. And, and sometimes within the championship or within, well, particularly the championship, you don't get time. Um, and one bad result can turn into four or five and then you can find yourself trickling down the table. So maybe it was that. Um, maybe it was the fact that we had the likes of myself or Reese McCabe, 
or Danny Mayer, and we were trying to blood in people who were inexperienced at that level as well. And yeah. it's very hard to put your finger on exactly what it was that that um, conspired to a, a string of poor results. But um, I think when you're when you're a player and you're within a team, as much as people probably don't stand up and say, you're very much focused on your own game and, and whether it is you're playing or whether you're not playing. And if I was to look back on my first season, I probably didn't expect to play the guts of seven or eight games my first year at Sheffield Wednesday because I was coming from more of a part-time background. I knew it was going to take time for myself to transition over and I had a three-year deal. So the first year was very much about betting in, getting up to speed with things and then see where it takes me for year two and three. Yeah. Um. So I was actually, I was actually really happy with my first year and that's, the feedback, you know, at the end of every football season, at least when I was over there, you would sit down with the manager and you were you would nearly do a performance review of how how you've performed and and where you've come from and what it is you need to improve on. And the feedback that I got from the management team was that they were extremely pleased with how I'd done both at Sheffield Wednesday and the fact that I'd managed to rack up a couple of appearances um in League One at Tranmere and it was very much yeah. go back and get rested up. I'd done back-to-back seasons because the Irish League over here runs in the summer months. Um, it was get your legs up and prepare yourself for season two. And <laughs> when I came back from, from from the summer and when I sat down with the management, it was the picture had somehow drastically changed that I was no longer in, in their plans and that they wanted me out and they had um, a club of mine that they wanted to send me to. And things just went from there, I guess. So, you know, let, let, let's get into it then. So you, you, feel, you feel it soured somewhat. Like your, Was it a relationship with, with Dave Jones or was it a relationship with some players or was it just all of a sudden things just changed and nobody explained to you why? Do you feel like you're, you're missing an explanation or do you feel like you found it now? I don't know. Like I, I, knew from, I knew from the moment it happened why the, the relationship um, soured. And the relationship soured because... At that moment in time, I had played probably the good to 15 games in my first season, and that was in the championship at Sheffield Wednesday, and like yeah. I said, in League One with Tranmere. And Dave Jones wanted me to go on loan to, to Berry, and Berry had just come through a really turbulent time. Um, they just popped out of administration, they were down in League Two, and um, that's where they wanted me to go. It was myself and Danny Mayer, they wanted to go on loan to Berry. And the reason being is because they were going to cover the majority of my wage. At least that's what I'm guessing. Right. Because that tends to be why a club would want you to go to one club over another club, um, particularly at that level. Mm -hmm. So I sat down with Dave Jones and his management team and I said, okay. I said, well, if I'm not in your plans, I definitely want to go somewhere and I want to play. Mm. Now, they did say that there were other options. So I I said, let me call my agent, let me get a bit of feedback from him and get a bit of advice as to what he feels might be the best move here. Because I was I was only in the UK one year at that stage. Um, my family aren't steeped in football, the footballing environment and the politics of that world. So I was very yeah. much reliant on my agent to give me advice on what the best move was, like any player. Um, so he suggested that I go back to Dave Jones and say that, I want to know what the other options are on the table before I make a, you know, affirmative decision on Barry and whether it is I'm not gonna I'm gonna go there. So that's where the relationship sour because Dave Jones didn't want to tell me what the other options were and he was telling me that it was Barry or nothing. 
And I said I wasn't going to vary until I found out what the other options were because as a player, I wanted to ensure that I was going to the club that was going to be the right fit for me because I was very much a ball-playing sentiment midfielder. I didn't want to go to a League 2 team, and I'm not saying very well at the time, but a League 2 team where the ball was going to be over my head for Absolutely. 70 or 80 minutes of the 90 minutes because it's going to do no favours for me. It's probably going to tarnish my reputation and people might look at me and not see what it is I'm capable of because the team aren't going to play to my style. Um, and from there, it, it just soured. So I was training with the under-18s probably within the next two or three days. And um, I was just very much out of his plans. And if it was very much that if I wasn't going to go to Barry, well, this is how you're going to be treated. Really? Because you're disrespecting me and you're... And very much so because it was seen as if you got sent. You, you got know, sent to the naughty step. His... You got you got sent into the corner because you did you didn't <laughs> do what you were told. Is is that is that really how it went? Well, uh, at that point, it was you know I want you out and I I need to. He wanted to free up wages yeah. for to bring a centre forward in, and I can understand that. But from my point of view, I wanted to do what was best for me. And that's what you have to do in those situations. You have to look after yourself and look after your reputation. So that didn't sit well um, because it was seen from his point of view that I was trying to say that I know better. And that was not what I was trying to communicate across. I was trying to say that this is something that I'm being advised by my agent to see what the other options are because I need to make the best move for myself. Mm -hmm. And if it's a win for you that you can get me out and loan, you can free up wages and you can you know, position me in a club which is going to suit me and progress me to then come back to Sheffield Wednesday and play again well and good. But it didn't uh, It didn't transpire that way. And in hindsight, I wish I had gone to Bury <laughs> because I wasn't to know that I was going to be sitting in the under-18s or the under-23s for the next two seasons and not playing any first-team games. I wish I had gone, but that's hindsight. And that's the beauty of hindsight and being able to say that, you know, he wasn't going to tell me what my other options are. Um, and he wasn't going to let me go out and loan um, unless it was uh, unless it was to bury at that moment in time. <laughs> wow, it makes it sound like he's got shares in Bury or something, doesn't it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? like, so, uh, so for two seasons you were there. Two two seasons you were outcast, as it were. Is it, is is that a you know correct way of putting it? Would you agree? Uh, I don't want to. I really don't want to come across as if I'm I'm trying to sound like a victim no, I'm not of all this not because. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not the only example of of the politics of the football world and what goes on behind closed doors and um how players get treated at different times. That that is just the situation that I experienced, and that's what happened with me. Dave Jones then moved on, and Stuart Gray came in, and because it was the same sort of regime, I never really got another opportunity of playing first team football the piece that really got to me and and really probably put me down was when there was there was players from the likes of Chris Maguire who was a number 10 Jeremy Halan they were being put into centre midfield ahead of me and I knew that my time was up at that point um, and I really wanted to get out. I really wanted to get out and play games. I just wanted to try get into a different environment whereby I knew I was going to be valued or someone might be able to put their arm around me and get me going again and rebuild my confidence. Because when you see, it's like any walk of life, when you see somebody who's not naturally um, 
position to play your position going in there and taking mm. your spot well then that just shows that somebody the person above you who makes the decisions has no confidence in you and that really that got me down um, and at the time I was actually doing really well in under 23s games and I was only actually the other night sitting there with my housemate and showing him some of the clicks, clips of when I played in my second and third year at Sheffield Wednesday within the 23s of some of the best bits that I had that um, I actually reminded myself that I was doing well. And during that spell, I had two offers from Chesterfield, from Paul Cook, to take me on loan, and the club didn't wow. let me go. And the reason being was because of that moment, because of that moment in time, we had a number of injuries in the first team. And if I was to go out and loan, it would mean that an under-23 would have to sit in the bench, and that would maybe show a lack of resources, a lack of depth in the squad, and they didn't want that to happen. So I wasn't the type, and I was never the type to kind of kick up a fuss or go knocking on the manager's door and demand X or demand Y. I wasn't that type, and I wish mm-hmm. I had been, um, because sometimes that helps you push through moves. So I went up to, to Stuart, who was in charge at the time, and I said, Stuart, um, I know Chesterfield are in for me. I've spoken to Paul Cook on the phone. I've spoken to my agent on the phone. I really want to go. Can we please try and make this happen. Um, you know, irrespective of how much of my wage they're going to cover, surely it makes more sense to free up some money because I'm not being played here. Like you've seen, you've shown that in your your changes during games that you've dropped people who were not naturally sentiment fielders into that position to play ahead of me. Irrespective of whether we've got two or three or 10 injuries, you're not going to play me. So he said, let me see what I can do. And it was the last day before the loan window. And uh, the club, the club yeah. prevented me from going out, and that that got to me as well because Chesterfield, if mm. you recall, were doing really well in League Two at the time. They ended up winning League Two, as far as I remember. I would have been going into an environment with Paul Cook, who knew me as a player because he was manager of Sligo Rovers when he was mm. when I was playing in the Irish League, and he tried to sign me there. And Paul Cook's teams tend to play quite expansive football, which played into my hands as well. So. It was a real win-win situation for me, and I just couldn't grasp or get get my head around why the club would not let me go out and loan. Because at that moment in time, I knew that the writing was on the wall that I was probably not going to get another opportunity at Sheffield Wednesday. Even if you take it logically, if I was to go out to Chesterfield on loan, do really well, well then sell me to Chesterfield, or another club might come in, and that would get me off the off the payroll you could potentially get a fee from me and you just get me off the books it it doesn't to this day it doesn't make sense to me why they would have prevented me from going out and loan wow. at that moment That's in time genuinely really really insightful so the um you, you know when we're, we're now down down the rabbit hole we won't let you go and uh you know you you wanted to play football you want to play at the best level you could as well. And, and like you said, Chesterfield that year did, did really well and having a relationship with Cook, but we, we wouldn't let you go. That's, that seems, I, I can imagine your frustration with this. So where did, um, where did Oli Finjana fit into all this? It's <laughs> <laughs> great. People seem to like this story. And uh, so Oli Finjana and Stephen McPhail came in um, during my second yeah. season. And they were probably the solution to our sentiment field problems. And the the I wouldn't say the irony of it is, but at my time at Sheffield Wednesday, I would say that I got on with ninety nine percent of the people in the dressing room. 
And in particular, I got on really well with Steve yeah. McPhail, given that Irish connection. Um, and I got on really well with Olaf and Jan. And he wasn't there for a huge amount of time, but he was there. Um, and I remember we had trained and I'd actually done really well in training. Um, and we were just walking back into the dressing room and, and Olaf and Jan had put his arm around me and he just said, you need to get out of here. <laughs> and I said, what? And he's like, you need to get out of here. You need to, you need to find a new club because the way this team is set up and the power being in place of the manager at the time who doesn't want you, he said, you need to get out to a club who's going to nurture your talent and progress you along because the opportunity is just not going to be here. And I was only 22 at this point in time. I'd only been a professional in the UK for probably just under a year. And that actually, it, it upset me at the time and I remember I was walking mm. back from the training pitch into the dressing rooms kind of almost holding back tears because I was thinking oh my god like I'm not even two years into a three-year contract here and somebody's telling me that this isn't the place that I should be and I was probably stubborn to an extent because I was thinking ah you know I, I understand where you're coming from but <laughs> I'm gonna fight to, to get you know another opportunity I'm gonna dig in I'm gonna work hard I'm a young footballer. I want to play for a big club like Sheffield Wednesday. I want to stay in the championship. And in hindsight, he was right. Um, and I wish, I actually kind of wish now that I had, I had not so much taken that advice, but I wish I had actually, um, almost when I got to the end of that second year, just seen if I could had some of my contract paid up by the club and just release myself mm-hmm. and, and start again mm-hmm. with another club because he was right. Um, I wasn't going to get another opportunity and I wouldn't say that people have made up their minds but the chances of me getting another run in the first team were probably wow. quite slim a- absolutely that fascinating I, I keep saying that don't I I'm going to need a new phrase I'm, I'm, I'm doing really bad with this Michael Parkinson I'm sat there listening to your <laughs> dreamy Irish voice coursing through my ears it, it's beautiful by the way um, so okay so let's <laughs> let's talk about the, the club I mean Lee Bullen for example been in and around the club for a number of years you you know, did you have much interaction with him? I mean, what was his role at the club that week? Because it seems to change every week. Um, you know, tell, tell us about Lee. Tell us about some of the uh, the big characters in the dressing room as well that were around at that time. Yeah, so I, I would have worked quite closely with Lee Bullen because the majority of the games that I would have played would have been at under-23 level. Um, and... You know, I I got on very well with him. I yeah. actually got on really well with Stuart Gray as well. I used to absolutely love Stuart Gray's training sessions because they were so football orientated. It was all about the ball. It was all about patterns of play, and it was all about intensity. And wow. I loved the intensity he brought to his training. And I know for a fact, if I was to sit down to and talk with Stuart Gray today, he would be he'd be able to appreciate the qualities that I had as a player, but still probably mm-hmm. didn't see me fitting into the system. And I'd be the first person to admit there were times when I was at Sheffield Wednesday when I could have done more, that I could have maybe trained harder, when I could have pushed myself in the gym a bit more to to try gain those little one or two percents. But when you're so out of the team and you're so out of favour, it's actually nearly more difficult at those moments in times to, to galvanise yourself, to keep yourself, remind yourself to keep going and, and to keep pushing and be you know positive that there's going to be another opportunity around the corner and there's times and that goes for probably nine out of ten players when they'll turn around and say yeah, oh, i probably may, could have done so. more at that maybe moment so. in time um so i i i don't 
I don't I, I don't entirely blame management and I don't want it to come across that way. I, I don't want to, you know, feel as if I'm looking back and saying it's his fault or it's his fault. And, you know, I had all the tools to make it as a top player, but I'm blaming him and I'm, I'm blaming Stuart Gray and I'm blaming Dave Jones. That's not the case. And to this day, I don't just blame two personnel mm. for the reason I didn't make it to the top in, in the English league. Um. Other people, other characters within the dressing room, we we had some funny characters. David Prutton was was a real character around the dressing room, a highly, highly intelligent man with a really peculiar. <laughs> I love the word peculiar. That, that suggests um, quite some weird gags, then, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? Peculiar. I don't think you could probably repeat them on this podcast. Yeah. Dressing room band. Dressing room banter. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't go. <laughs> I can imagine. Room. <laughs> um, but then the likes of the likes of Royston Drenthe, so you're, and I used to sit right beside Royston in the dressing room, and you know, a, a man who played for Real Madrid and the stories of Jose Mourinho and Sergio Ramos <laughs> and Iker Casillas, and you're thinking, my God, what have you done with your career <laughs> that you're sitting beside me in the Sheffield Wednesday dressing room? Did he, uh, did he treat you to any of his uh, any of his rapping skills? Did um, he treat you to any of that in the? Because uh, I, I believe he tried to be a. A French rapper or something. I, I can't. I can't remember. There was just just there was some weird hip hop track he released or something. I'm pretty sure it was not long after his Sheffield Wednesday career. Did you ever hear any of that? Because it was well rubbish. <laughs> no, I know he was passionate about his music, and he had, as far as I remember, he had a music production company, um, and that was obviously something he was passionate about, and he actually. He would have had a, a fair control over what music played in the dressing room, and I'm not <laughs> sure it was really my genre, but he just kind of put up with it, given his reputation. Incredible. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for that, Paul. I really appreciate that. That was genuinely a, a, an amazing insight into what goes on behind the scenes, and I, I and I agree with you. I don't I don't think you've come across as bitter or blamed it on one man. It just seems to be a an amalgamation of events that have gone on over a period of time and and that's where you've uh, that's where you've found yourself to towards the end so tell me about tell me about now tell me about you know moving forward tell me about what what you're up to nowadays because i believe uh, unfortunately injuries have got the better of you and uh, and you've had a not not the playing career on the head is is that correct yeah so when, when i left Sheffield wednesday I, I would say i was in quite a dark place for probably at least a week, 10 days and very much isolating myself from the rest of the world and not knowing where it is I was going with my career because, like I said earlier, it was a, it was a dream that had almost turned into a nightmare. Um, to cut a long story short, I found mm. myself in Northampton with Chris Wilder and Alan Hill and they they signed me and I loved the place. I loved what they were trying to do. I, I, I looked at the squad and thought, and having trained with the squad, that they'd have a good opportunity going up in League Two. And I thought, well, this is my opportunity to restart my career. And unfortunately, um, I was only fit for 11 games. I played in four. And probably just as I was coming towards getting my fitness back and getting back in the rhythm of things, and I'd started to play quite well, I just, in a 1v1 situation in training with a, with a fellow called uh, Dave Buchanan, had the ball on the outside of my left foot and I chopped it on the inside and yeah. I just had two massive cracks in my knee. And to say it felt like somebody shot me in the leg is an understatement because what I ended up doing is 
I ruptured oh. my ACL, I ruptured my LCL, I ruptured my MCL, I ruptured my cartilage, and I shattered the meniscus. So I did, I did three of the four yeah. cruciate ligaments, and a rupture means that they completely snap in two. So to to make a long story short, again, I had my op. I went in to see the surgeon. He he described it as one of the worst he'd ever mm. seen, and this is the guy who does all the top athletes in the UK. I rehabbed it. I ended up out of the game for 14 months. I had only signed a one-year contract at Northampton who had gone on to win League 2. I got released from my contract there. I came back to Ireland and signed for Shamrock Rovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen McPhail was then the director of football. The manager was a fella called Stephen Bradley who's still in charge and I'd played against him when I was younger. And I signed there. The club doctor was the, or still is the doctor for the Irish national team and the physio is also the physio for the Irish national team. So they're a big club within League of Ireland terms. And also I had the right medical support around me. Um, I didn't, I got back playing and I never got back playing to the level I, I thought I would. Mm. And my knee used to swell. And I mean like a balloon, even after a training session. And I ended up uh, trying to get it right with a number of different procedures, with a number of different injections, jabs, and there was one procedure where they take the blood out of your knee, they swirl it, and then they inject it back in. All sorts to try to get myself fit, and it just didn't work. And I ended up re-tearing my meniscus in a little incident in training whereby I went to close down Graham Burke and mm. got into like a mini squat position. I just felt a click, and I tried to ignore it. Not not quite the pain of the first time around. I tried to ignore it, and... um. I, I went and took a shot and I dragged mm. the shot and that was unlike me because I was a technical player and I just walked into the dressing room and I'll never forget it because I put the babe over my head and I cried the whole way in because I knew that was it. I knew it was six months into being at Shamrock Rovers. I'd only managed two games that my knee wasn't going to let me play again. So I had a meniscectomy whereby they opened me up and they repaired the meniscus and I came wow. out of surgery and the surgeon just said, stop playing. He said, trust me, stop playing because he said, if you continue with the, I guess, the intensity of football and training every day and playing matches, he said, the impact of simply running. Will wow. wear down I mean, you, you, so you were looking to be walking at the time after the, after the three and when somebody that says you had. That, I mean, to get told that as well. Seriously, that's, uh, that's big news. Yeah, well, I... I had my knee completely reconstructed with um, ligaments pulled down from my hamstring and other tendons mm-hmm. from my knee used to to retie the ligaments, um, and that took fifth that took fifteen to eighteen months to get back to playing, um, and then when you've worked so hard to get to that point, to then break down again and be told at twenty five that you might not walk in 10 years. That's, that's a, it's a scary thing to be told. And he said to me, listen, I know you don't have uh, a family and kids, but he said at some point in your life, you will, and you're going to want to be able to simply get up out of the chair to, to run after them. And he said, if you do continue the way you are, he said, you won't be able to do that. And that's, that's scary, scary thing to be told. And people say to me, and and they're probably right to an extent. um, If it was to happen to somebody, it was, it was probably just as well it happened to me because I was probably more set up than most um, 
to in with regards to the next step in my career mm. and I, I was lucky that I had a business degree behind me and I'd lucky that I had a really good support network in my family who had always been good to me during really difficult times that I knew would help me get back on my feet again but I still go into work every morning and I still know that I should be walking into the training ground of some form uh, whether that be in League of Ireland whether that be in League 2 whether that be in conference I should still be playing professional football at this moment in time and I'm not and that is still something that I haven't fully gotten over and it's probably something that I yeah, want to, to be fair Paul I, you maybe know, a I'm, couple of months or years I'm 39 in about four weeks time and uh, even I still sit there and think why am I not a professional footballer but you know you've had a taste of it I suppose it's better to have loved and lost I think if, the, if there's any way of uh, <laughs> any way of looking at it um, you know but Paul thank you so much for uh, for telling us about that thank you for bringing us inside a world that us football fans were normally left out of um, so you're you're part of the media world set up now is it is that correct yeah so I often sit here and I wonder how how I how I fell into it but I do bits and pieces in the media over here I did a podcast um to announce that I was retiring and off the back of it I, I just I got a few approaches from the different um media companies over here. So RTE, which would be our equivalent mm. of the BBC, um, I do a bit of radio and I do a bit of television there and I do a bit of television with a, a company called Air Sports. So I do the television on the League of Ireland and then I do a good bit of radio with regards mm. to the Premier League in the UK and also the Irish national team and the current trends and topics. So that very much keeps me involved in the game. And I like that because it mm. forces me to go out and watch matches. It forces me to study the game and, and to watch uh, the game from a different perspective. And I'm st I coach as well. I coach down in the schoolboy club that I was involved in when I was younger. And, and that really gives me a buzz because I'm almost giving back but not just giving back, I can. I like to see the progression in younger players and try to point out where it is they need to improve and try to take them on a journey and try to prevent them from making the same mistakes that I did in my career. So I'm very much involved in the game. I don't think there'll ever be a point in my life when I'm not because um, it's something that I loved and I probably lost and I would say a number of players would agree with you that when it becomes your job and when it's something that you have to do seven days a week, 52 weeks of the mm -hmm. year, you do lose a certain love for us. And, and I would say now that I've, now that I've stopped and I've got a, a, a nine to five job, and I've started to probably regain some of that love for the game. Um, and, that 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 is that is probably something I'm starting to appreciate again. I I like sitting down and watching games and, and studying and you know as as probably uh, I know it's a bit of a a weird saying, but I'm a student of the game and I'll always look at it from probably a different perspective to most people. And I would like to think that I have a good football brain. Amazing. So I, I'll always amazing. Always Paul, always. Once have again, in thank you life. for your time. Uh, if you want to uh, follow Paul on Twitter, I think it's Paul underscore Corey. Is that correct? Uh, double R, no E. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. Just oh, honestly, Twitter is an absolute toilet. Uh, uh, You've got to be thick-skinned for it, brother. Right? <laughs> and uh, my name is Dan Fudge. Don't forget to join <laughs> us the podcast at TWCast. Thank you very much for joining us on this very special episode of the Wednesday Week brought to you by the Riverside Cafe.
Keep up to date with the Wednesday Week on Twitter at TWWcast or on our website, thewednesdayweek.co.uk. It's the 90th minute. You've got all your mates round. You've got your McNugget chair boxes coming down the left wing ready to go. Your mate's already been booked for double dipping and you steal the last nugget. Snatching all three points. Back of the net. Lubosh. Automate delivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com for more information. See you later. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver-assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.